That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, JDK Winnikin. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of This Show is All About You. Glad to have you along with me for the next hour while we uh, dig into some subjects and have some conversations that maybe, hopefully, get below the the level that they often happen in in this media-crazy world that we live in. And uh, I'm thrilled to have you here uh, with me. First of all, uh, if you are listening live, thank you so much for doing so. Glad to have you here. If you're listening as a podcast Thank you so much for subscribing and downloading and leaving me a review. Really appreciate it. Uh, And you can find this uh, podcast wherever you get your podcast. That's the great thing about it. I'm also um, easy to find on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and find me rather easily. Would love to chat with you. You can also check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com. There's a a lot of stuff there, original writing, updates, uh, portions of the novel that I'm pitching to publishers, which is its ongoing saga and the like. And I also post episodes of this show and uh, post episode comments and that type of thing. So you can check that out. Want to make sure at the outset here, I thank this show's uh, very generous sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, for their continued uh, support. Airway Science for Kids, you can check them out at airside.org. They provide life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth in aviation and aerospace and you will hear more about them during the show breaks a little bit later on. So uh, the last couple of weeks uh, has really just been you and me, me in the studio talking about various things. And it's been a tumultuous time, to say the least, uh, in our country. And so I had a couple of episodes talking about that. Uh, and while I'm very happy that I did that, I'm also really happy to have a guest back in the studio to join me for what I know is going to be uh, an amazing conversation because she's an amazing lady. And, uh, and I think all of you will agree by the time we're, we're done. I'm going to introduce uh, you to Cherry O'Neill in just a little bit on the other side of the news. So let's just jump right into that, taking a look back on the week that has been in the portion that I call What in the World is Going On? We have ambitions to liberate the south of the country. The Ukrainians are already pushing quite a big offensive incursion. We may see some real, really dramatic events there in the next couple of weeks. But eventually, he's saying, we will liberate the south part of the country. What it really reflects is the fact that come the autumn, if the Ukrainians can hang on, then the pendulum will begin to swing back towards them militarily on present trends. If the Russians don't do something pretty dramatic, then the pendulum will swing against Russian forces and towards Ukrainian forces. It's we're at that point where sometimes it can be really hard to remember that there is a very, very bloody and consequential war going on uh, in the heart of Europe as uh, Russia and Ukraine continue to grind against one another in the eastern sections of Ukraine. And uh, that comment there was uh, Professor Robert Clark, who is an expert on uh, strategic and warfare studies in the U.K., talking about uh, really what is going to be happening here as the weather begins to change and we get into the fall and the winter in that part of the world. Those are not really good conditions 
uh, for fighting, and that's an opportunity for Ukraine. Ukraine announced over the weekend that they are looking to build a one million person uh, military force by the end of the year. They already have 425,000 fighting, which is bigger than the military uh, numbers that Russia is using right now. That that sometimes gets forgotten. And the introduction of, of more uh, weapon systems, including the, uh, the so-called HIMARS rocket system, has really given Ukraine uh, some advantages recently. They've been using them, uh, these mobile rocket units, to hit uh, command and control stations well behind the Russian lines. They can fire 300 miles behind lines. So they're blowing up ammunition depots, food supplies, uh, hitting uh, headquarters with lots of high-ranking officers in them, that type of thing. And that is uh, having a very dramatic effect on Russia's ability to fight the war, despite the fact that Russia now really op- pretty much controls the Donetsk and the Luhansk regions. There is probably a counteroffensive coming near the coastal city of Kherson by the Ukrainian forces as they try to open up those port cities, because one of the side effects of this, and maybe you're starting to hear about this in the news, is Ukraine produces about one-fifth of the world's grain, popu- uh, grain supplies And that food is not getting out of Ukraine because of Russian blockades. And that's leading to um, increased uh, food crises in Africa, uh, the Asian subcontinent, Southeast Asia and elsewhere. And uh, a lot of the warning signs are going out that famines could be on the way in some of the poorer parts of the world. And so uh, while there have been a lot of things to take our attention uh, in this country of late, uh, that situation continues uh, to be a problem. But Ukraine at this point appears to be shooting to get to the snow and the mud of the fall and the winter. All right, speaking of home, let's talk a little bit about what's coming up here at home very soon. Former President Trump's top White House lawyer, Pat Cipollone, talked with the January 6th committee for eight hours Friday. The committee tells us this morning that they received critical testimony on nearly every major topic in its investigation, reinforcing key points regarding Donald Trump's misconduct and providing highly relevant new information that will play a central role in its upcoming hearings. You know, I wonder when we look back on this a number of years from now, uh, to what degree this committee will be talked about uh, as the uh, really kind of original and amazing experience that it really is. Uh, Tomorrow, there is yet another hearing that will be broadcast by the January 6th Select Committee, and it will be focusing on the connections, however they might manifest themselves between uh, far-right groups like the Oath, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, who were heavily involved in the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, and uh, circles around then-President Trump uh, and the White House itself. And uh, certainly a lot of this coming out of the bombshell testimony a few weeks ago by Cassidy Hutchinson. Uh, and Cipollone, the man who's mentioned there, one of the more important people uh, in that testimony, and he apparently didn't refute a lot of it in his uh, in his testimony. So it'll be very interesting to see where this goes, uh, despite the fact that there are a number of people on the political right complaining that this is a kangaroo court. It is not. Uh, it's it's not even really a court. What it is, is an airing of all the evidence put forward in a very, uh, very clear, very dramatic narrative framework for people who are following it to understand exactly what was happening when all the various layers and then, of course, as I mentioned before, um, to hand this over, if necessary, to the Department of Justice to see if they will pursue any criminal charges in this, either of former President Trump or any in his inner circle. Uh, what this will do for the historical record, though, for me as a historian, is going to be very interesting. No way to know what that will be. But this is about as powerful a historical evidence case as I've ever 
either seen or heard of coming out of Washington and its history. I mean, and that includes things like Watergate and, you know, the big scandals that we talk about. Uh, This one seems even bigger than that. So tomorrow's hearing will be interesting to say the least. Okay. So that's it for uh, the news. Uh, I want to talk, I want to introduce my guest today. I have another clip to play a little later on and she knows it's coming. Uh, But I'm really excited to uh, welcome a guest today that I think uh, all of you will really enjoy hearing from and hearing about and what she's doing. And that is uh, Cherry O'Neill. And Cherry is, uh, is a friend of mine. We've known each other about five years now. Uh, and we met in some business networking circles back in the day. And the first time I sat down and had coffee with you, Cherry, I had no idea uh, what it, who you were or what your background was or anything like that. So let me, first of all, thank you for being here. Happy to be here. All right. Well, I'm, I'm excited. So let me give everybody a quick bio of you. Uh, uh, Cherry and Cherry is the old, the eldest daughter of Pat Boone, mm-hmm. the Pat Boone, right? The legendary singer, actor, uh, his big heyday of fifties, sixties, but all the way even until today. I mean, mm-hmm. he's he's still going in all the things he's interested in. The Energizer Bunny, the Energizer <laughs> Bunny, yes, he is. And uh, she was a key part in uh, the. I, were you called the Pat Boone Family Singers? Is that what you were called? Just the Pat Boone Family, and and my sisters and I did some recordings. No, and we were uh, known as the Boone Girls. That's right. So, That's right. Four of you. Yes. Right, and you're the oldest of four, mm-hmm. and that included television shows, uh, shows in Las Vegas, right? A uh, number of things. And your father, of course, was in movies and heavily connected in. Uh, politics as well, right? right, in the 50s and 60s, and, and well-known, uh, connected alongside uh, people like Billy Graham mm-hmm. and others. In, and he was one of the most prominent Christians in the world for a really long time. Yeah, right? for, for that not being his primary, you know, vocation, <laughs> it was definitely, definitely right up there with Billy Graham as being a globally known Christian person. Right, right. And as far as star power goes, uh, one author recently uh, wanted to remind readers that he was as big as Elvis once upon a time. Yeah, he actually holds a few records that Elvis doesn't hold, one of which is, and I don't know if anybody holds this record, but... He actually had a song on the Billboard charts consecutively for over 250 weeks. So if, if one record was coming down, another one was going up for 250 some odd weeks. That's and five years. I, I don't think it's been broken. Man. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose maybe once upon a time you could think Michael Jackson, maybe, maybe. but not yeah. for that long. Yeah, right. That's incredible. Okay. And so you were... You're, born into this very prominent family, and we'll certainly be talking a little bit about that. But the reason why Cherry is here is to not to talk about her famous family, right? but to talk about her the life that she has built and experienced since then, because it is a life that has started in stardom, really, in a lot of ways, and has you now essentially spend your life helping other people. That's, um, that's the hope. <laughs> that you sure sure seems to be. Now let me let me tell you uh, everybody a little bit more about that, and we'll jump into the specifics of it as we go. Uh, Cherry was very prominent uh, with her father and with her family in all of these areas that we're talking about. In fact, I want to play a clip really quickly of something from 1978, a television show, uh, and everybody listen for Cherry's name in this. Go mm-hmm. ahead. Welcome to Pat Boone and Family. <laughs> I look forward to doing this show for a long, long time. And, of course, I'm going to have uh, my, my wife and my whole family on the show with me, Shirley and the kids. Uh, of course, they're not really kids anymore. I've got to admit that. They've grown up, and so is Shirley. Uh, 
Laurie's 20, Debbie's 21, Lindy's 22, and Cherry's 23. And I, I have to keep Shirley's age a diplomatic secret. <laughs> there you go. That's from one of the, I believe, an Easter special that right? family did in 1978 yeah. that, that you can find. And so with that in mind, I mean, Cherry was very much uh, prominent in all of that, and it's fun to see all the various clips and that type of thing, you guys roller skating as a family <laughs> and all, all these kinds of things. Uh, but really underneath that, you were you were really going through something. Right. By the time that appeared in 1978, mm-hmm. uh, you were already going through something that you would bring out to the world in October of 1982 in a book titled Starving for Attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the subtitle is A Young Woman's Struggle and Triumph Over Anorexia Nervosa. Mm-hmm. And this was a big deal, obviously, for you right. to write about. But this was also the first memoir ever written in English about a person's struggle with an eating disorder. Is that correct? As far as I know, yes. It mm-hmm. was the first first-person account of, of dealing with it and recovery from, you mm-hmm. know, offer, offering hope for people that might be suffering silently like I had. It's not exactly the kind of thing that you publicized back then. Hardly anybody talked about it. Right. And so my being willing to be vulnerable and tell my story and be as brutally honest as I felt I needed to be to have the impact I wanted to have, um, it was uh, it was the first of its kind for sure. Absolutely. And by the time it was published in 1982, you were over 10 years removed from this first being identified to you as right. what you were dealing with, mm-hmm. right? So 1971, so you were 17? Yeah, I was 16, 17 when I was first taken to our family, well, our pediatrician, actually, mm-hmm. uh, because my mom had discovered just how my bones were starting to jet through. I mean, I was very good at covering my bones with layers of clothing, but she had lifted up my sweatshirt one night and seen the ribs poking through my back. Mm and got me in the doctor's office the next day. And they didn't tell me what it was that I was struggling with. They just said, I've seen this. The doctor said, I've seen this before. And if you don't start eating and putting on some weight, we're going to put you in the hospital and have to force feed you, Mm. which, you know, freaked me out because I had been working so hard to try and control and and shape and whittle my body into exactly what I wanted it to look like, even Mm -hmm. though it was emaciated. So. Mm How long, yeah, that was 16, 17 when mm-hmm. this finally comes to light. How long had you been struggling with it up until that point? I think my first uh, struggles with trying to lose weight were about 13, 14 years old. Okay. Uh, I had gained weight because I had found my mom's diet pills and had been, you know, sneaking them on the side. And when she discovered that I was, you know, that her pills were disappearing too quickly, she canceled her prescription. And both of us ended up gaining weight. And so I became concerned that I had put on this weight and I began to exercise and diet after that. And at first it was very healthy. But the problem with becoming obsessed with something like that is that you start out trying to control something and it flips and starts to control you. Mm -hmm. And by the time you're ready to be done with it, it's not easy to stop. Right. So were you ready to be done with it by the time you were visiting that pediatrician or was it still something that was emerging for you? It it was still something that was emerging. At that point, it went from being strictly anorexia, which was trying to be thin and, and, you know, to diet to bulimia, which was the binging and purging. Because at that point, I knew I needed to try and put on some weight, but I was still struggling uh, mentally with the idea of being okay with that. Mm. So 
I would try to eat and then I would feel guilty. And so then I would do whatever I felt I needed to do, whether it was purging or uh, taking laxatives or, you know, whatever, to try and counter the, the weight that uh, or the intake that I was having to try and gain weight. So it was a real kind of schizoid mm. uh, existence where part of you wants to get well and, and gain weight and part of you is saying, no, 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 we, we're not ready for that yet. Wow. And this is all well before there are the now well-established treatment centers and oh, programs that, yeah. that do exist to address this for young women. Yeah. As far as I know, there wasn't anything really available uh, for help. In fact, like I said, it, I didn't know it had a name until I was 20 years old. Okay. So even after that, you still didn't know right. it had a name. Right. I finally read an article in Time or Newsweek or something that gave it a name and showed that there were doctors who were trying to come up with treatments for people that were going through this. And it didn't help me. It just gave me the, the satisfaction of knowing I wasn't some isolated freak going through this by myself. Which is such a big part of Right. Recovery. I wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Okay. So by the time that clip that I just played a little while ago, 1978, mm -hmm. I, can, I can tell you by looking at you, that there's they pan to you guys right. and all that. As far as visual proof, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known. No. Uh, were, were, were things improving by 78? Um, starting to. I was fortunate in that I had a kind of a, a fleshier face, so mm -hmm. it didn't show up in terms of the emaciation. Mm-hmm until later when it, I was really in the throes of the bulimia and a lot of laxative abuse. Okay. And that is what caused me to really uh, become dangerously thin and probably closer to maybe losing my life than I realized because of the electrolyte imbalance and the possible, well, that's kind of what happened to Karen Carpenter. Right. Her heart stopped because of diuretics and, and electrolyte imbalance. So. Well, and, and to put this you know side by side, your book came out in October of 19... 82, mm -hmm. went on to spend a number of months on the New York Times bestseller list because it was the first of its kind. It's also, as you mentioned, very, very graphic mm -hmm. in terms of what your experience was, uh, which which is shocking even now to read it. <laughs> uh, but back then must have been even more so. And then just a few months later in February of 1983, Karen Carpenter died in a very high profile right. death from this that really launched this whole conversation into another stratosphere, mm -hmm. it sure seemed like. So- what we'll do, Cherry, is let's pause right there. We'll take our first break and we come back. We're going to talk a little bit about what that whole experience of writing the book, where it came from. And then I want everybody to hear what she's done with it ever since, because it's a pretty amazing story. So we'll be right back with Cherry O'Neill on This Show is All About You. Stick around. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't ask me to talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacy Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder. Don't ask me to talk echoes what we're talking about 
when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show Is All About You. I am J.D.K. Winnikin here with my guest, Cherry O'Neill, eldest daughter of Pat Boone, uh, was a singer, celebrity, uh, author of a really profound best-selling book, uh, Starving for Attention, back in 1982, about her battle with anorexia nervosa. We've been talking about that, and we're really kind of taking this, you know, to show where Cherry's life has really gone since then, because that, to me, is the most amazing part Mm. of all this. But we left off before the break, Cherry, talking about writing this book and your experience from about 1971 to about 1982 that's this arc of really confronting this Mm -hmm. and recovering from um, anorexia nervosa and bulimia what you were saying and uh, we mentioned that uh, Karen Carpenter died just a few months uh, before that and Mm -hmm. and just for for listeners to understand because Cherry's father was so well known Cherry met a lot of really famous people oh yeah in your (laughs) life right you've met you met like who are some big ones I know you don't want to name drop (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but let's just, for the sake of context, let's name drop a little bit. What were some of the big ones? You mentioned Elvis. Was Elvis somebody you ever met? I met Elvis more than once. And one of my most amazing memories as a small child, we rented the house that Elvis had rented before us when we were waiting to move into the house that my dad now still lives in. Oh, wow. And so one morning I walked down into the kitchen and there was Elvis Presley talking to my dad in our family kitchen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and at five or four or whatever, I mean, I was probably five or six. I, I didn't realize how unusual that was. Wow. Two heavy <laughs> hitters looking, in the same Looking kitchen. back at it now, it's like, what? Right, right. <laughs> and uh, the Beatles as well, I know you've met. Yeah, yeah. My, uh, my family was in Las Vegas when the Beatles were doing their uh, United States tour in the, 1964, and we saw them at the Las Vegas Convention Center. And my dad had sponsored an artist who painted Beatle posters. And so after the show, we went backstage and we got to spend time with all four, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Wow. Wow. Any any of the four really stand out to you among them? Um, it was interesting. I mean, Paul is pretty much who he is, you know, mm. on, on the front. George is more thoughtful, more quiet. Uh, John, same thing. He had a few pointed things to say. And the one that was kind of fun was Ringo was really quiet. But every now and then he'd say something kind of out of the blue and it was hysterical. <laughs> you know, it was just like you weren't expecting it, but it, you know, so he'd say something really funny. Even with, even with your, your status and, you know, you being aware of being in a high profile family, were you a little starstruck by any of these? Well, I think that was definitely, I was a Beatles fan. I was 11 years old, so oh, I wasn't, man. you know, in my full blown teens yet, but I definitely was a fan. Gotcha. And, um, you know, there were other times we met we met people that were pretty impressive. You know, I mean, I remember going to birthday parties of Jerry Lewis's kids and Debbie Reynolds kids and, mm. you know, be attending events where El- Elizabeth uh, Taylor or John Wayne might be there. And I mean, performing in Las Vegas and running into Sonny and Cher. I mean, it just, mm-hmm. you know, running into them. Right. Now, it's right. like. And it's a very unusual lifestyle, but when that's what you grow up with, you, it doesn't strike you as being unusual until right. you look back at it later and realize this doesn't happen like this for everybody else. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. So, so in with that context established, let's kind of bring this back around to uh, to the book. And you knew Karen Carpenter. Yeah. As well. And so, you know, your book comes out, 
and she dies not too long after that. Mm-hmm. What comes up for you when you look back on that time, right, around then with her passing away? Well, I actually had a few phone conversations with her when she finally went to get treatment in New York. Mm-hmm. And my mom had, we, we had had traveled in the same circles before I left uh, L.A. We actually had the same record producer. And so we would be at similar at, at events together. And so when she found out that I was, you know, doing well and having, and that I had had my first child, she talked to my mom and my mom gave her my number. And so we had a few conversations about what recovery had been like for me and what it took. And I, I really wanted her not to put a deadline on her recovery, which is what she felt she had to do because she was the hub of the wheel that was the Carpenters. Yeah. Everybody depended on her and her voice and her ability to record and, and tour and perform. But because of that, she tried to put a deadline on when, when she would be done with her treatment. And yeah. with something like anorexia and with a lot of things, you can't just say, I will be well by such and such a date. You know? right. And she ended up terminating her therapy and her treatment before she was ready to, and we know what happened. She went from New York back to California and got back into some of the same habits and, and you know, lost her life as a result. And to this day, if I'm in a grocery store and I hear a Karen Carpenter song come on, I have these mixed emotions of, being so sad mm-hmm. that we lost her and yet so grateful that my story ended differently because it could have just as easily ended the same way as her. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the thing that comes up for me with that and, and is when you, if you put pressure on yourself and I would think this is particularly true in a, in a famous, mm-hmm. the, it's sort of the same type of pressure that brought you to that outlet right. of behavior in the first place. Mm-hmm just reinforcing that if you put a deadline on it. So right. so you didn't put a deadline on it when no. you began. No. In fact, I ended up it was a very difficult thing, but I had to cancel the contracts that our family had signed to perform together and tour and I had to leave Los Angeles and move up to Washington state where I was able to see a doctor who we found out had had some experience in treating people with eating disorders. And I pretty much just had to say goodbye to everything and leave it open-ended and okay. and hope that this change would lead me to the recovery that I was was looking for. Okay. And so this, of course, before the book, before the oh, yeah. big reveal, was this something that people were aware of? Uh, I mean, outside of the tight circle of your family and, mm-hmm. and all these different groups, was this something that was public, known, talked about, or was it? did you guys keep it secret? Um, I don't think it was really publicly known for the first, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe eight years or so. And I eventually started talking about it, uh, even though I was still in the, in the, middle of the struggle, uh, occasionally on maybe some interview shows or something. Um, and I would try to put paint a, you know, positive face like that. I had it under control, even though I knew I was still struggling with it. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until I finally just moved away from the pressure and, you know, the deadlines and the, you know, you have to be this persona and Mm -hmm. you have to, you know, you're judged by what you look like and, and mm-hmm. you know, your your performance and all of that stuff. And I had to just get away from it all and learn who I was and create an identity that was not based on what I looked like, how much I weighed, what I did, who I was related to, yeah. any of that stuff. Yeah. The very thing I keep doing to you. It <laughs> was the very thing you really need. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. makes a lot of sense. And you have done that, mm-hmm. right? And that's something that I, sh- I think all listeners should know is that, uh, as you'll see, as we talk a little bit more about that, uh, Cherry's definitely, you've carved your own path. Uh, there's, there's no doubt. Okay. So, so this book comes out, Karen Carpenter, 
passes away uh, tragically. And it's it's national news, right. uh, international yeah. news. It's a big deal. And your book takes off with this. It's on the bestseller list. And you were going on pretty much the circuit that still exists today for this kind of stuff, the Today Show, mm-hmm. um, Nightline. Mm-hmm. You also were on uh, talk shows like The Donahue Show mm-hmm. and Sally Jesse Raphael. You, you appeared on Richard Simmons. I know. Well, show. because it was a, you know, eating exercise related issue. Mm-hmm. So it fit right in. Um, the only one I didn't do and I kind of wish I had had a chance was Oprah. But <laughs> oh, yeah, right. And she would just just start now. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. So so you pretty much did the, the whole circuit on mm-hmm. this and interviews and. I've I've seen clips from some of them. I went and mm-hmm. hunted them down. Yeah. And the one thing that really stands out to me is there's almost a nervousness among the people interviewing mm. you. Like they don't know how to talk about this right. with you. And then your your book is so forthcoming that it felt like you were walking into the room with everybody on their heels automatically. <laughs> did did you have a did you have that experience as well? What was that like having put yourself out there yeah. like that around something that nobody knew how to talk about? Right. Um for me, when I was doing the writing of the book, I made the decision early on that I was going to be brutally honest mm-hmm. and that I was going to be as vulnerable about my experience as I possibly could because if I was expecting my story to have any beneficial impact on anybody else, I felt like they needed to know the truth of how bad it got. Mm-hmm. And um, so I... <laughs> I joke sometimes, I say I kind of pantsed myself in front of the world and said, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is what it was like for me. But because of that, you know, like you said, it did make some people kind of uncomfortable to broach the subject because, you know, people hadn't really started talking about the way they do now when they've, you know, gone to rehab or something like that and they'll talk about it. There was It was something that was relatively not new. It hadn't mm-hmm. been done a lot. Um, and I, because I had already written about it, I didn't have any qualms of talking about it. It was already out there. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was interesting to, to go through that experience. And very often in, you know, almost every interview, they would always go to some of those really graphic situations to ask the questions about them because that's, that's what you do on TV. Right. Right. But, um, but I was willing to talk about them because that was what happened. It was the truth. And it's what got me to the point of recovery. So, mm-hmm. and and I, I, it's amazing. In every single one of those uh, clips that I saw, they talked about you know discretion. Hey, we're going to be talking about. There's like this heaviness, right. this air to it, which must be fascinating for you to look back on now, considering that that the media world we live in is so different in the mm-hmm. sense of, you know, if this were to happen now, it would be on social media, this type of thing. But oh, right. This was the avenue, a book. And television, mm-hmm. right? And and you'd already covered all the other things. You were people knew you from music, people right, knew you from television. Yeah. Your father was known from movies and and politics. So, all of this together, right? What was it? Writing the book, publishing the book, doing the tour, did that give you a sense? Uh, did that enhance the freedom you felt from? From it made me feel like I was the one in control of my story. Mm. You know, when you tell the dirt on yourself. <laughs> when you just flat out say, this is what happened to me, this is what I did, yeah, it it was awful, yeah. but, you know, I've, I've come so much further from that point now. Mm-hmm. But if you do that, nobody's going to dig and find anything on you that you haven't already told on yourself. Right. right. So, you know, it's like, <laughs> this is me, you yeah. know. <laughs> there is something really powerful about and that. And it's very freeing. Yeah, you it know? is. Yeah, so... 
So that was a you look back on that as a very positive experience doing yeah. the tour and the book and, mm-hmm. and all that. Okay, uh, and certainly uh, the book had an effect because you published a book not too long after that called Dear Cherry: Questions and Answers on Eating Disorders. Mm-hmm. Just reading through this book, you clearly got a lot of mail. Oh yeah, from people. Yeah, and and. It's interesting. I mean, obviously, I didn't have a secretary or an office or anything, but the letters would come to me, and I made a commitment to myself and to, you know, the people that were taking the time to write to me that I would answer every letter I got the day it came, Mm. but I would keep it to one page, and that kept it manageable. And so to this day, I will sometimes meet somebody that will say, I wrote you when your book came out, and you wrote me back, and I still have the letter. Wow. And some of the amazing things that have happened have been people that have come to me for help now are some of those same those very people wow. who got letters from me back when they were struggling. Any sense of how many you wrote? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. I'm sure it was hundreds. Must have been. Yeah. Must have been. Wow, that's incredible. And so, so then there's been a cycle. You continue, you've heard from some of these people. And of course, they've all, many of them have grown, had their own kids. Mm-hmm. Grandkids, that type of thing. Yeah. Have you seen any of that? Any kind of generational? Uh, generational in terms of, of just the contact with people, yeah. or with the that, and just that maybe facing similar things. If they yeah. faced it themselves, do their kids face? Well, one of the things that we will talk about, I'm sure, here in a minute, is mm-hmm. that um, I've been doing some personal coaching, and <laughs> one of the people that reached out to me was somebody who was struggling with a relapse of bulimia after she had been had recovered from it for a long time. And during the course of our conversations, uh, we discovered that her initial anorexia had begun because she was the victim of incest. Mm -hmm. And it was her attempt to take control over her own body and make herself unattractive Mm -hmm. and unappealing. And it took her a while to recover from that. But she did and went to college and and everything. And then the, the person who had assaulted her came back into her life and it set her back on that same uh, track and that's when the when the bulimia started up again and as we were talking she had been an artist and she had stopped doing art and she was talking to another therapist to help her with dissociative identity disorder because of the the assault sure. and the incest and she gave permission for me to talk to her therapist and I said I I hope I'm not stepping on any toes I'm just kind of going with my gut and my intuition and and you know recommending certain things that she do she goes Whatever you're doing, it's really helping. And I said, okay, well, let's stay in touch. And I asked this this person that I was working with, I said, what do you think has made the difference that adding coaching to your therapy has helped you made such, you know, uh, you know, kind of greater uh, uh, movement forward in your recovery? She said, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. A couple days later, I got an email from her, and she said, it's, I think it's because when I was 14, I wrote to you because I read your book, and you wrote me back. And there was that rapport that we had then, and it made me trust you yeah. that I could come back and tell you what was going on in my life now. Wow. A lifeline that literally spanned years. Yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that you do coaching. And, and since you mentioned it, let's just bring it up right. now. Uh, since 2011... Uh, Cherry has uh, been running active transformation life coaching, mm-hmm. and uh, which I know is very rewarding for you, and is, oh, absolutely, is, yeah. is your kind of your compass point in life at this point. And so you've worked with a number of clients, uh, not primarily, not necessarily just about 
eating right. disorders, mm-hmm. right? But primarily, has, that's been a lot of your clients? It, those, I think, are the people who are initially attracted to me. But one of the things that, about my book when it came out that surprised me that there were so many people who said, I don't have an eating disorder. I don't know anybody who does. But I got so much out of your story because I deal with perfectionism or low self-esteem oh. or, you know, I have, you know, trouble with body image or stuff like that. It wasn't full-blown anorexia or bulimia, but there were these other common denominators Mm -hmm. that they could identify with. And so a lot of times when I'm working with somebody who's a coaching client, some of those things will come up. It might not be specifically an eating disorder, but it will be self-image or perfectionism Mm -hmm. or something like that. And then now I've raised five kids and I have five grandkids, and that (laughs) has been its own set of challenges. So I have worked with people on parenting issues. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I like to, to do is help people go from being their child's manager to being their child's consultant <laughs> mm. as they approach autonomous adulthood. Right. Um, and that's hard, especially for, you know, you know, people that have been maybe hovering parents before. And then the other thing is, is uh, helping people that kind of more my, more my demographic with creating their third act. It's like you've raised your family, you've done your job. Now what? Now now who are you? What's your purpose in life? Mm-hmm. And I love working with people like that because it's not about what you have to do anymore. It's about what you get to do. Mm, and right. that's kind of what I've done. So Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you're sort of living that, yeah. showing that. Yeah, because that's your, your third act, if mm-hmm. you will. Wow. Uh, and, you know, it's funny just watching you. You got so excited. Your, your body language <laughs> just shifted. The big smile came on with all that. And that has to be just immensely powerful. So, mm-hmm. so coming out of that, raising your family, you, one of the things that comes to mind for me from my own recovery journey is what they always told us was, in the end, whatever the method is that someone you know, uses to eventually lose control, right? mm-hmm. some addictive thing, all comes back to very similar sets of very human mm-hmm. experiences, human conditions, human traumas, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And it's not a surprise to me that that's where you end up you know, mm-hmm. talking with a lot of people, coming back to almost those basics, mm-hmm. if you will, around our human experiences that for some of us, they end up branching out into something that becomes incredibly destructive. Like you said before, it starts out as something as a way to gain control. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line, it shifts to having control yeah, right. of you. Yeah. And that that is such a universal thing uh, for humans to deal with, isn't it? So, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a second break here. And when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about this and some other larger lessons, some key questions, that type of thing. We'll be right back with Cherry O'Neill on This Show is All About You. Come on back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. 
or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. I'm your host, JDK Winnikin, here with Cherry O'Neill, having an amazingly uh, <laughs> candid and really hopeful conversation, Cherry. I really appreciate you being so honest about your experience. Um, so, in this last section, let's you know you're talking about the coaching mm-hmm. that you've done that has really kind of been sort of the the final the arrival point of so much of your experience, right? And and the chances you've had to help women people in general, but mm-hmm. a lot of women who have gone through the same things you have in your coaching. What has been the most rewarding part of coaching for you? Mm-hmm. Is it is it something that you, you get to bring your best forward to the best <laughs> of your ability? Is it being able to continue to follow through on what happened after your book, you know, mm-hmm. being able to help so many people? What is it about this third act that you yeah. love so much? Well, you know, after I had finally come to the end of my recovery process in terms of the eating disorder, um, I looked back and I thought, man, I wasted 10 years of my life focusing on calories and how many hours I exercised. And, you know, this was a formative part of my life when I could have decided, you know, what my career was going to be or what I was going to major in. I was so busy just focused on this, you know, controlling my body and my, my intake. And I, I felt guilty about that mm-hmm. until I was able to write the book. And then I realized this has given me the opportunity to put all of that in capsule form and share it with other people so that it is a redemptive force out there in the world. Mm. It could have been a waste, Mm -hmm. but because I was able and willing to tell the story and to be as honest as I was, it has that redemptive ability to help other people. And I think it's not unlike other recovery programs. You know, people who've been further down the road in some kind of addictive behavior turn around and say, here, I've been there. I'll walk with you. Oh, and it's vital. Yeah. Right. To, to have to give back, mm-hmm. right. To, to need to give back. It's such redemptive is such a powerful word. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It seems like it goes right side by side. It can either be destructive, mm-hmm. you know, and life ends. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, a lot of people get hurt along the way, or it can be redemptive. Right. And owning it. So much of that, that owning it, that honesty that you talked about yeah. earlier. Such well, a key. Not only does it does it help other people because it gives them hope that, you know, maybe they can recover from whatever they're struggling with, but it's it's part of the recovery process for anybody that's going through it. The more you are able to share your story, mm-hmm. the more it reinforces what you've already been through and continues to keep you on that track. Yeah. Yeah. And from so. my own experience too, it, it, it becomes a continual reminder as as you talk about it and you see people are helped by it that for all its destructiveness now in this moment and however many moments we choose to continue going forward, mm-hmm. we can help somebody else who's right. either gone through that or help them avoid it. You can be able, it's man. Redemptive is the word, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wow. if, if I didn't, if I hadn't written the book, I might still be regretting some of those things, but yeah. the fact that I was able to write my story, share it with other people 
and now also apply other lessons that I've learned since writing the book, whether mm-hmm. it's about, you know, dealing with raising kids and some of the stuff that we've gone through as a family together mm-hmm. with, you know, mood disorders and addictions and stuff like that. Mm. Those are serious issues, and they affect a lot of people. They do. And if, you, if you're not willing to talk about it, nothing changes. That's true. But if you are willing to talk about it, either from the side of this is, this is what helped me or I need help, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you have to be willing to talk about it one way or the other, or you're not going to be able to move forward. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, well, and I've told you before, jokingly, but I'm even more convinced of it now. <laughs> it sure seems to me that the time has come for an update and a reissue on this book. <laughs> have you thought? Have you thought about reissuing? I've thought about it. Yeah, you know, I mean, sometimes people say, "Well, that you know, that story's outlived its you know, it's it's lived its life." But you know, the more I find out about people who are still struggling with it, I mean, just in People Magazine, we all saw anybody who saw People Magazine that Jackie Ivanko who won the, you know, uh, America's Got Talent, Mm -hmm. has been struggling with an eating disorder through her teens and now is struggling with osteoporosis and, and, you know, brittle bones because Mm -hmm. of not nourishing herself properly as she was during that formative period. Yep, yep. So it's not a problem that's going away by itself. It has to be addressed and and worked on. Well, and, I mean, literally, if if you're the first book that was talking about this, there's nobody out there who has been fighting against this and no is knowledgeable <laughs> about this more than you. Well, at least from a firsthand, you know. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I haven't, mm-hmm. you know, gone to to get my degree in medicine or psychology, but mm-hmm. I kind of feel like my life has given me, you know, its own kind of schooling for oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, and and you know, for, in in the recovery in recovery circles, the reason why they connect you with people to sponsor you is because they've had the experience. Right. And that goes a long way with mm-hmm. these types of things, particularly things that are so wrapped in shame and, you know, by themselves when we keep them quiet, right? right? When we open up about them and we talk about them and we hear other people have gone through those same experiences, it helps us forgive ourselves. It helps us heal. It helps us connect. It right. helps us work. Notice all those things that are at the core. Oh, I have perfectionism going on. You know, mm-hmm. I have all those things. Uh, so I'm just going to throw my hat in and say, <laughs> I think you really need to do this because, you know. And whatever I can do to help, I want to help you do well, it. Well, so, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So really quickly, with all the knowledge that you have and the experience that you have, what would you say to parents that are listening to this who have who have daughters? And it's sons, too. Oh, right. It's, it's yeah. not just— About it's not 10% just, are male. Right. Children mm-hmm. dealing with this. What are, you know, what are things that often get missed and why? And what would you say to them mm-hmm. as far as what to look for, how to respond if they've noticed something? What comes up for you? What would you like to say to those families? Well— I mentioned this to you earlier. It's uh, it's kind of it used to be called the good girl's disease. You know, it's it's there was a book called the perfect the best little girl in the world, and mm-hmm. then there was a movie made uh, by the same name. And oftentimes, people who develop eating disorders are the people who seem to have it all together. They mm-hmm. seem to be the good students, the high achievers. Um, but there's something that seems to be missing internally, that, that not feeling like they are enough. And so mm-hmm. they have to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. So they're not going to be the squeaky wheel. They're not going to be the one that's, you know, throwing tantrums and getting attention. They're going to be the ones that are spending time in their room doing homework and maybe, like I did, exercising four and five hours a day. Um, I'm not causing any trouble to anybody else, mm-hmm. but I am living in this world of obsession. Mm-hmm. And so I think... If you can be aware of the fact that just because your kid doesn't seem to have 
screaming problems on the outside, that doesn't mean that the lines of communication shouldn't be regularly delved into because they might not be talking about things that they're feeling, but that doesn't mean they're not feeling them. Right, right. You know? So so would it be sort of active and open curiosity, continuing Absolutely. to open up safe Absolutely. spaces? Yeah, yeah, safe spaces. That's uh, awesome because the last thing you want your kid to do is to tell you something and then feel judged or feel shamed or, Mm -hmm. you know, it has to be a place where they can say to you, you know, I really feel upset about how I look or, you know, and people will blow it off like, Oh, you're fine. You know, Mm -hmm. that's not, they need to be heard and they need to be validated and it needs to be talked about from their perspective, Mm -hmm. not from your perspective. When I was writing my book, I gave my parents the opportunity to have feedback And I would write one chapter at a time and I'd send it to my parents and say, do you remember anything any differently? And I was talking about factual differences like Mm -hmm. the date or the, you know, the people we were with or whatever. But I had to be true to my perception of what I was going through because it was my perception that caused my problem and my behavior. Mm -hmm. So just because you can tell your kid, oh, don't worry about it, you're fine. That might be how you perceive it, but that's not how they might be perceiving it. And it's how they perceive it that's going to determine their behavior and the choices they make. And that needs to be heard and held. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, I think sometimes I've, I've seen it in other capacities where, you know, well-meaning parent addressing that saying, well, that's not what was happening mm-hmm. or that's not what we were doing or that's, you know, when sort of misses the point. Right. Right. Is that their their perspective, their experience, whether or not it's quote unquote factually true right, yeah. doesn't really matter when somebody's in the throes of that type of crisis because mm-hmm. you're probably not seeing things totally realistically anyway <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it's not having a profound impact on right. you and how you how you feel you need to live your life right and however disordered that might be right you know so is it often that with since since there is so much about eating disorders that is is based in secrecy and hiding mm-hmm. it and the shame of that and the image of that that that's that parents who are not engaging in sort of active communication and creating safe spaces for their kids, that's how this stuff gets missed. Yeah, definitely. Experience? And okay. then there are also also you know I would say occupational hazards like if you're going to be a ballet dancer or if you're going to be a wrestler or if you know there are going to An be athlete. certain types of yeah. things where weight is, you know, there's a premium placed on that and mm-hmm. and if that becomes the most important thing in your life, that's that's a you know. Right. That's going to be a trigger to start something like that. Right. And it can come from anywhere. Right. It doesn't have to be anything that's high profile. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to be a whole high profile person like mm-hmm. you like you were. You know, it can be any of those things. Mm-hmm. And the types of pressures that that people face still today now yeah. you know, with social media. Oh, yeah. Oh, immediate I, I'm responses. so glad I didn't live at a time of Instagram and Twitter and stuff oh, like I that. I mean, I can't imagine the pressure that kids feel with stuff like that these days where filters and comparing and you know, bullying, cyberbullying, and that kind of stuff. It's just, yeah. Yeah. It's, that safe space is really important. Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, Cherry, if anybody wants to reach out to you to talk to you about this or to get connected to Active Transformation mm-hmm. uh, for some help or a conversation or to say, hey, you wrote to me all those years ago, <laughs> how do they find you? Well, I have a website. It's uh, www.active-transformation.com. Uh, I... My phone number, I can give that. It's uh, 206-550-3809. And uh, if I don't pick up, leave me a message and I will call you back. I promise. 
Yeah. And she means it because <laughs> she does. So that's amazing. And, and I will post that same information uh, with your permission, Cherry, mm-hmm. on wordsbyjdk.com to follow up this episode so that people know how to find it in mm-hmm. case they were scrambling to write that down. Okay. Uh, but, you know, she means it, everybody who's listening. Um, Cherry, thank you so much thank for coming you. on and being so honest about this. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you. You're a real inspiration to me, Aww. and I know you're an inspiration to others. So let's get on getting this uh, right. book redone. Okay. okay, I know. I have my marching orders. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for being here. Thank uh, you. And I hope all of you listening out there got as much out of that or more uh, than, than I did. And uh, appreciate you so much uh, listening into this episode of This Show is All About You. Again, check out wordsbyjdk.com later this week uh, for uh, this episode, as well as follow-ups and the information and links and that type of thing. You can also contact me there with any questions about uh, previous guests or upcoming up, uh, upcoming guests. If you missed any of this episode or any others, you can download it as a podcast from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So as always, I like to end the uh, show with thank yous because it isn't just about me. <laughs> this show is all about you. is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is the in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Please check them out at airside.org. The original theme music for this show is by Dave Melson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and to all that went well for me this week goes to Cherry O'Neill, <laughs> uh, Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Mark and Yolanda Frazier, Bethany Spitzer, Lorelai Murray, Bruce Bullard, Kathy Van Eka, Antoinette Bernardo, Stacey Heller, Bruce Flommer, Jenny Butts, Adelina Popescu, and Steve, Abby, and Luke Foster, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thanks this week to the Seattle Mariners for going on an eight-game winning streak to save their <laughs> season and to curb my cynicism about them uh, to Episode 4 of For All Mankind for making my heart stop in the best of ways, to Ice Packs for being such good friends to my knees and my shoulders following my various workouts, and to my pitch to publish online group for the swift kick in the backside I needed around taking next steps in publishing my novel. And to you listeners, of course, thank you. I couldn't do this for you without you. And finally, as a way to send you off into the rest of your week, let's end with this original haiku. Learning to embrace who we are and how we are starts in our bodies. Chins up, everyone. <laughs>